lives. Welcome to the First Impressions podcast, where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a big middle finger to all those haters. It's another episode, and I am Kristen, and I am joined, as usual, by my co-host, Margaret. Hi! Hi, Maggie. And Hi! We're really, we're really excited today to be joined by a guest. We are joined by Natalie Jenner, debut author of The Jane Austen Society, a book that has just come out, I believe, a couple of days ago. And um, we're just really excited to talk to you, Natalie. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's our pleasure. Yeah. So we were we were really interested when your is Madison your publicist? She, um, she's one of them. <laughs> yeah, the contacted us. What immediately drew me to you and to you know wanting to read your book and learn more about it was this the story that she introed about your personal relationship with Jane Austen and how you sort of dealt with some heavy things by reading Jane Austen, which is exactly my story and the mm-hmm. things that we talk about on, on on the podcast all the time. But yeah, but so before we jump into the heavy stuff, do you want to just give our listeners an intro of the book and what they can sort of expect from it? Sure. Um, The book is about, well, it's historical fiction. It's set at the tail end of World War II. It's about a group of eight extremely different people who are all becoming entranced with or already obsessed with Jane Austen, either on their own or in little subgroups. And the book follows them as they come together in this village that is still recovering from the trauma and the loss of the Second World War. And they decide to try and save the cottage where Jane Austen had lived for the last nine years of her life. And this is based on a real life happening which was the founding of the real-life Jane Austen Society in 1940 and the attempt to acquire the cottage as a museum. And that's where the similarities end because I've completely fictionalized the actual uh, founding of my society in my very fictional book. Yeah, so the so people Natalie, you read about in the Jane Austen Society never actually existed. It's it's names and, and circumstances that did not exist. So all of that is fictionalized. But the focus on acquiring Chawton Cottage... Yes, it sort of parallels what happened in real life in a way. Absolutely. And the locations are very real. So when I describe the great house and when I describe the cottage or the village of Chawton, I'm describing the buildings as they exist still today. And back then, I even had an artist friend do a map of the village for me in the book. And it's adorable. Um, Mm -hmm. We call it the village. (laughs) 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 Because it's like, here's where Dr. Gray lives. Here's where Adam lives. But it's, uh, I think it's a book that's trying to communicate and convey appreciation and the significance of these efforts of preservation, but doing it through a very fictional and dreamlike lens in order to allow me as a writer to explore other things I was also interested in. And basing it on the lives of people that really existed would be, I think, as a former lawyer as well, offensive because I would be <laughs> yes. trying to ascribe to them motives and emotions and experiences that they may not have undergone. So I wanted to make the people very fictional so that I could kind of go crazy with them, you know, <laughs> send them on their way. Yeah. And to show how Jane Austen can be so meaningful and a meaningful intervention in lives that have lost their way or people who are hurting. And also to do some nice little parallels with uh, some Jane Austen plots as well. While you're at it, yeah. While you're at it, of course. Two birds with one stone. (laughs) And Natalie, I just wanted to take the opportunity to tell you that I loved your book. Oh, I've been waiting. Everyone, (laughs) I just, I so loved it. I actually listened to the audiobook. (gasps) 
Yeah. I know. And <laughs> all of our listeners will be very excited, I'm sure, to hear that the audiobook is narrated by one of my favorite actors, Richard Armitage, who is so dreamy. <laughs> I'm such a, I'm like geeking out right now. No, it's okay. Um, but it was so beautifully written and I thought beautifully read as well. And I was just hooked instantly and transported. And so I just wanted to thank you also for putting out such a great book. I just had such a enjoyable experience listening to it. My husband would be like, what's going on? Cause I would gasp and like react <laughs> as I was listening. And so he would, he would have to know what was happening in the plot. And I would text Kristen like plot twist. Are you done yet? So I can talk about it. <laughs> Thank you, Maggie. That's lovely. Oh, no. Thank you. <laughs> um, Richard Armitage, obviously a huge pull, uh, or it seems to me, especially for a, a debut author. And I would love to bring this up, up now because I think it's the perfect time. We were actually contacted by Laurel Ann Natras of Austin Prose a couple of weeks ago when she heard that you would be doing this interview with us and told us somewhat of a fairy tale story about how Richard Armitage, how how it was suggested almost in jest or like a yeah, like yeah. a dream. Oh, it's a great story. Do you want me to lead with this? Yes, please. It's if you really want good. to. So Laurel Ann and I share an agent and she got to read the manuscript before almost anyone. And she very early on was not only a, a wonderful champion of the book, but with blue sky with me, you know, Oh, if, you know, if they do this or if this happens or if they make a movie and she'd mentioned Richard Armitage and I'm a huge fan as well. And I, it must've just kind of got in my brain. And so, you know, four months go by and I presented with a list of lovely female narrator voices and I'm like, you know, they're, they're all lovely. I listened to them. They were all great. But I was on a train and I had my ARC, my advanced review copy of my book, The Jane Austen Society, in like a Ziploc bag because I would take it to coffees to meet my girlfriends. I had one copy and I would keep it, <laughs> I keep it like, like the Shroud of Turin. It's in this little yes. Ziploc. <laughs> and I would like hold it between us on the table and I'd open the book for them. And I'd be like, here's where you're thanked at the back and here's the oh. dedication. Yeah, like so a car seat for the manuscript to make sure nothing happens to it. <laughs> it does feel like another child. Yeah. I have a husband, a daughter, and two dogs, and I, I feel like I have five children right now. So anyways, I'm on the train, and I have the review copy, and I'm thinking about these female narrator voices, and I'm thinking about what Laurel Ann had said, and I decide to go through the book, chapter by chapter, scene by scene. It takes me about 15 minutes, and I add it up how many scenes were from mm -hmm. either just a male narrator voice or a scene involving just two men, and there was more of those then group scenes mixed or scenes involving just women or a woman. And I called my agent and I said, have we thought about a male narrator? And my agent, who's amazing, was like, well, what are you thinking? And I went, well, what about Richard Armitage? And I was feeling pretty spiky and like, I was really energized. Like, you know, the publishing journey was going really well. And I was kind of like, I'm just going to go for it. And go he for talked. it. Yeah. yeah. Shoot the moon. Shoot for the moon. Richard and Armitage. Give yeah. me that. Give me that yeah. lore like, from Lord of the Rings. Give me that hottie yeah. from North and yeah. South. Let's do it. Let's just like get the Darcy that got away is what I call him. Right. <laughs> so I'm kind of like, so I'm sitting on the train and my agent paused and he's like, you know, that's interesting. So then he said, do more research. So I got off the phone and I, I started Googling and I saw that he had done, you know, the Georgette Hire uh, books, like Vidicia mm -hmm. on, oh. on, yeah. Oh, 
Just a second. Let me write this down. Yeah. Download immediately. Okay. He, he, you know, Lord Demerol, like he, it's amazing. But he had also done, I looked up purposely, some Macmillan titles because my publisher, St. Martin's Press, is part of the Macmillan family. He had done The Tattooist of Auschwitz, which is such a huge title. So I called my agent back and I said, you know what? Like he's done Regency Romance and he's done work for Macmillan. And my agent, you know, was like, oh, this, we can maybe work with this. And, you know, it took like a little bit of time. But fortunately, my publisher's people were able to get to his people. And I went to New York to meet everybody at Christmas time and to record an interview for the audiobook with Kathleen Flynn of the Jane Austen Project, which is a book that I love. And I'd asked her if she would interview me. And we were all in the room together, her, me, and a bunch of people. And the head of Macmillan Audio uh, gets the email and just looks at us and says, oh, it's confirmed. We got Richard. And it was the most wonderful scene. And then I had to sit on it, ladies, for three months. And I thought I was going to burst. And I did tell my mother, who was sworn to secrecy, I think it's the only secret my mother has ever managed to keep because (laughs) she knew how important it was. She didn't want to mess this one up. She's such a huge fan. And the best coda to the story is that my husband and I, I was doing a, um, a book tour on the West Coast and we were in California for the very first time. I'm up in Canada and we're so excited to be in L.A. and Santa Monica. And I wake up Sunday morning with an eight hour time difference and my timeline on Twitter has blown up. And there is a tweet from Mr. Armitage saying, uh, Natalie Jenner, could you please DM me about the Jane Austen Society? And like all over the world, there were like hundreds of women going, go DM him back, girl. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to slide into those DMs. He invited you. Go for it. (laughs) It was so funny. And he he was just thanking me and telling me how much, I think he said, like, he goes, I absolutely adored this book. And I'm recording it, you know, right now. And it was just the icing on the cake. Well, no, it's the cake. Everything else is the icing. <laughs> Being published for the first time pales in comparison to talking yeah. to Richard Armitage over Twitter. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty wild. Well, what I love about you getting a male narrator is it also follows along with one of the things that's mentioned a lot in the book, which also happens to be kind of the mission statement of our podcast, which is that there's a lot of misogyny and other things wrapped up with Jane Austen where people who enjoy her can be looked down upon, right? Oh, it's just a romance and there's nothing wrong with romance, but there's this kind of diminutization of her legacy, which really bothers me and Kristen. And so that's why we kind of have the podcast to give a middle finger to the haters. And so I love that Jane Austen is explicitly in your novel and with the audiobook not seen as quote, just for women. It's really interesting that you raise that because I have a, a daughter who's entering third year university studying English literature just like her mother here. And she has always loved Jane Austen. But you know, when you go through your teens, you sometimes move into, you know, different genres and you go through um, little fads, right? She goes off to university and she said to me, she goes, I think she's the favorite author of every single one of my professors. She's at a a very top, you know, university internationally. And most of the professors are PhDs from, you know, Ivy Leagues, et cetera. And she said, all of them, it's, it's Jane Austen. And these are a lot of male profs. Right. And I think she, that really hit her. Mm -hmm. And I was, and I was like, yeah, I studied Jane Austen at a time in the late 1980s 
when culturally she had not been appropriated quite so much as just a chiclet, Bridget Jones, you know, wet shirt, all of which I love and adore. I totally love all that aspect of her in terms of popular culture. But from a literature standpoint, she's one of two or three geniuses, you know? And so I think that does get lost a bit. And, and to go back to your more general question at the beginning, when I was reading a lot about Jane Austen in what I now call my quiet year of unintentional research, I was using her for solace to get through some you know, difficult personal challenges. And I was reading a lot of books about her. And one of them was Juliet Wells reading Austen in America. And what really hit home for me was when Professor Wells was tracing the lineage of these early first American editions of Emma that were done in two volumes in 1816. A lot of the owners historically and who they pass it on to had been men. And men sometimes are quite prominent, you know, Supreme Court justices, mm -hmm. etc. And as I was reading this book, it just really, really got into my DNA was the sense of, I really want to reclaim her for everybody, you know? Yes. So this is what's fascinating to me. A lot of this, ladies, was not intentional. <laughs> like, a lot <laughs> of my book was just, I feel like writing again. But I did know three things when I sat down to write this book. The first one is that I was going to call the book The Jane Austen Society. And the second one was that I was going to have about eight to 10 different characters because I like multi-character, uh, multi-narrative stories. So I knew there would be eight to 10 people and I knew they would be split evenly, half men and half women. And then that was exactly what happened as I was writing. And I love that I opened the book with a man because I don't know, it just, it really, Adam's character, the farmer at the very beginning, page one of my book, he is sort of the vehicle through which I wanted people to watch someone discover Jane Austen and understand the beginning of the falling in love, the beginning of the rabbit hole. He was, um, for me, a really great example of that through a male consciousness. The last thing to say about the male-female, I think culturally, the, the imposed divide, right, that this is a book for women, this is a book about romance, happy endings, etc. The last thing I'd say about all that is that I've had a lot of men come forward to me in the past especially past week since it, the book was released on Tuesday and are saying to me, I've never read Jane Austen and I'm a man and your book was very strangely a total escape for me. They really uh, were surprised at their level of enjoyment. And that gives me a very, uh, a, a real particular thrill. <laughs> yeah. That's very fantastic. gratifying. Yes. Yeah. That's the dream, isn't it, to convert the men in our lives, right? And yeah. um, actually, if I could go back to if I could go back to Adam for yeah. a second, yeah. I love that the book began with someone discovering Jane Austen, and I love that the book really plumbed how much it made a difference in Adam's life to discover her, to develop a relationship with the character of Elizabeth Bennet, and to be empowered by her. And if it's okay, if I just talk about one brief quote from the book. I love that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going to read it and I'm not going to be as good as Richard Armitage. <laughs> oh, but, but you should try. Do the, do the North England accent. <laughs> I also, I, when I, he's reading it too, I also would always think of Sean Bean, who's another one of my favorites. And because they have, they both have that kind of North England so anyway, Kristen, you can cut that out. Nobody needs to care about me and John Bean. Nobody cares about you, Maggie. They uh, hear about it constantly. <laughs> I, he, Adam obviously has some fraught uh, family, a fraught family situation. And he's reading about, he's reading Pride and Prejudice and he's reading about Elizabeth. And here's what um, Natalie has written. 
He saw Elizabeth as the linchpin to the entire Bennett family, the one whose boldness and emotional intelligence was keeping her own family from the brink. But she never flaunted herself as a savior. She just loved so thoroughly and so wisely that the saving of others was the inevitable result. And I think that's extrapolated on the next page to Jane Austen herself. On his loneliest of days, he sometimes felt as if he was being saved by Jane Austen. And that's sort of the basis of this podcast, right? And so this comes so early in the book, and it was just underlined in my Kindle copy. So, and, you know, marked up so heavily because I was just like, yes, yes, yes. And the concept of being saved by Jane Austen, I do think that we live in a very difficult world, but we also live in a very rich world full of so much history and so many stories and so many great artists. And my life has been so enriched by popular culture and history and great literature. It's what makes my days so full and complete at the end, in, whether I'm enjoying it with my family or on my own, whether I was a teenager alone in my bedroom or meeting someone at a party and you bond over I don't know, like an Ethan Hawke movie or something, you know, like you just have these moments in life where you completely are alive because of all this work of others. And Jane Austen is one of the greats. I feel that she has probably had a tangible, meaningful impact on so many more people than we can, you know, guess at. But I know that speaking for myself, like, you know, she has saved me. She is a comforting place to turn to. I love disappearing into her world because she gets you close, but she never takes you over the brink. So you never turn a page or finish a chapter or go to bed at night and feel anything other than, for me, being energized or exhilarated. I don't ever feel brought down by what I'm reading. And sometimes in life, reading things that are challenging is very important. I do it all the time. But sometimes in life, we need the literature or the books or the movies that are going to give us comfort. And so she saves us through that. A recurring theme in your book is people turning to Austin in times of grief. And actually, I thought this was very interesting as it all apostrophized. I would I would completely agree that what you just said, Natalie, about being energized is true for me for all of the books except for one, and that one is persuasion. Mm. So you have a you have a <laughs> character who's experienced a, an almost inconceivable amount of loss. Yes. Um, reading reading persuasion. And I was just, I, I wrote in my copy, my Kindle copy, like, no, girl, girl, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Maybe that's not the one. Do not read persuasion. But yeah, do you feel that way about persuasion too? Now I'm just really curious. There is a scene, you know, when Adeline is reading persuasion and it's on the top of her stack and Adam, the farmer is very bravely deciding, you know, to try and, you know, chat with her and he sees the book and he says, that's a hard that's a hard one. And, and she said, you know, hard to read, which is a bit presumptuous, right? Yeah. Because he's the farmer, she's a school teacher. And he's like, no, hard to feel. And I get through persuasion personally by imposing on it Kieran Hines and, you know, <laughs> hand lifts into carriages. And I can only get through it by visually imposing on it the sort of positive imagery that everything will be okay. It is, it is her elegy. It is her, it is her her book of autumn. It is her book of loss and grief. It is her book that she was probably more ill than we knew for longer than we knew. So she probably 
had a sense that something was going wrong when she was starting and finishing that one. And I feel it when I read that book, the loss of the mother early on being recounted so specifically um, her age, uh, Anne's age being 15, when she loses her mother and realizing that what happens with Captain Wentworth happens just two or three years later. She makes a catastrophic decision because of her family that is going to throw her life off the rails. And now she has to try and get back to that point. Grief has thrown her a curveball and she's also let it, you know, she has to um, get past it. That book is full of grief in a very interesting way. So I completely agree with what you're saying about persuasion. Yeah. Yeah, and Kristen and I have talked about before is how as we get older and have mm. more experience in our life and more maturity, the way that we view um, pieces of art in general, but also mm. books like Persuasion can change. When I was younger, I didn't get Persuasion. I wasn't really into it. And as I've gotten older and have experienced loss in my life, I see it as much more beautiful and personal. Yes. And I loved the allusions you made in your plot to some uh, Austin plots. And I don't think we want to give, you know, big spoilers yeah. or anything, but there's one point where I was very invested in the Andrew and Francis uh, characters uh-huh. where you mentioned, oh, you know, he went to the war and he came back a Navy hero. Yes. I'm like, I see what you did there, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys want to know how, sorry, go ahead. Am I interrupting you? No, I was just letting you know, I girl, I see you. I know what you're doing. Yeah. 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 Well, I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. So here, that was, are you saying that was unconsciously done really? Yeah. Yeah. So here's the story. So I was going to write about these eight characters, all kind of being in love or falling in love with Jane Austen and then learning to love themselves, but I don't plot. So what happened was I started to write and the first image that comes to me is of a man on this stone wall and he's very sad and lonely, but I don't know yet why I know nothing. And then I remember doing that exact same thing myself the previous fall. I'd been lying on that exact stone wall waiting for Chowden house to open. I'm lying there with my copy of M on my chest and I am feeling very concerned for um, an ill family member, but at the same time, very inspired by and you guys have been a child, and so you know the peacefulness around you and the weight of the history and the efforts of preservation that are very inspiring for people that love Jane Austen in particular. So I start writing, and something has to happen, right? So I look on page two, and I'm like, okay, Nellie, you know, something has to happen now. So I have this stranger show up. I make her American. It's the classic, the classic plot. Somebody right? comes, a stranger to town, comes to stranger town. Stranger comes to town. I make her American, and I I know she's American. And that's all I know about her. And I don't yet know that she will turn out to be the Hollywood film star. She's not a Hollywood film star yet either. But I know she's in love with Jane Austen. And, you know, she's me and you and you. With the people that go to Chawden, right? And we're looking to find her. We're looking to find something, an experience. So I'm channeling myself in both these two characters. So it's when I write the line, he was getting worried for Mr. Darcy that, one part of the Austin connection parallel kicks in. And I was like, oh yeah, I get to talk about Jane Austen now as much as I want. <laughs> I love that. I, I love all of the characters' yeah, discussions. Yeah. And I even, having done this podcast for what, like two years now, Kristen, even I 
discovered new things when the characters are discussing nightly how yeah. he kept the list of books yeah. that Emma had written, which connected him with Harriet, keeping all her small treasures. Yeah. I was walking outside and my mind was blown. No, I that, never thought about that. I know. It was a realization I'd made when I was rereading her the previous year. And I remember as I started to write, I was like, this is such a great vehicle for me to explore these things I've learned about her recently. I try not to actually read too much secondary writing about Jane Austen. Um, because I want to keep my own uh, views that I'm now communicating on podcasts and, and books. I want to keep them sort of fresh and, you know, as much my own as possible. But what was really interesting about the other awesome parallels, not only do I get to stay in this world and just have my characters talk about Jane Austen, like as much as I want or as little as I want, but I had these two characters. I don't know. You might've heard me tell the story, but I'm going to tell it anyways. So I've got these two characters sitting on a bench and they're having tea in the courtyard of the great house, which is something that I have done. Many a time now, when I go to visit Chawden House, I always make sure to have tea in the, the beautiful courtyard there. The old kitchen tea room, it's fantastic. I highly recommend everybody do it. So I have these two characters sitting on a bench in the courtyard, and they're talking, and I'm writing them. And they're talking about Emma, and they're kind of arguing about Emma. And I pick up again on this sort of like really kind of weird, spiky vibe between these two characters. And I was like, ooh. And I've talked to other writers about this. Your, your characters will give you um, interesting sort of intuitive um, vibes sometimes that you didn't intend. And I picked up on an attraction between them and I hadn't intended it. So I'm thinking it through as I'm writing and they're talking about Emma and I've made an age difference. And originally ladies, the age difference is much greater than it is in the final book because they were not supposed to end up together. So I was, I made, that was something I was yeah, going to ask. No, I, I, these are things I had to do in the second draft. I'm not a fan of revising. I love the first draft. <laughs> the first draft for me is like a drug. I can't wait every day to find out what's <laughs> going to happen because I haven't outlined or plotted. And when these two are starting to be attracted to each other, for me as a writer, the romantic in me really started to take off. So with both those couples, what happened was, is I was just intending for interaction to take place in the book. But as I was writing them, even in the first scene, it would then come to me, wait a minute, this could be a fun parallel. So it wasn't something I intended with either couple. And then part of the revising was sort of making sure that I had enough clues in there. That somebody, like you said, I see you, girl, you know, yeah. so I had to kind of go back and add some of that, which is really, you know, autopsying my book and, and really giving away um, some of the, like the approach. But it's the honest truth. And it made the book more magical for me as a first draft experience that I hadn't intended any of that to happen. And it was another way to stay close to her and to channel her and to profit off of her, her brilliance. <laughs> One follow up about that. And then Kristen, I promise I'll let you ask your question. Um, but you had said that some of these things happened and it was just subconscious when you were writing. And I was wondering if that was the same thing that happened when you made most of the characters older than I would expect you know, late forties, which I appreciated as someone who's turning 40. I don't necessarily want to see 18 year olds falling in love all the time. Cause what did they know? No, it all happened very organically. So with the age, I wanted some of the characters to experience both wars. That is so, exactly what I thought you might say. <laughs> so originally I had them all my age because I was mm. writing to get away from myself, but I was also writing to, in retrospect, I think work through some of the I don't know, challenges that you face as you move through midlife. So I'm now 52. So originally they were all in their 50s or the three characters that 
I'm talking about in particular, but I did make the choice that I wanted some of them to have been through both wars, um, closer in age to me. And then when we, when I worked through the the second draft. And then when I was working through the edits with my eventual editor at St. Martin's, we really had to make sure that everything tied up with, could you have needed your parents' permission still to get married? Could you have gone off to work? Could you have been conscripted? So we had to be really careful, but we, right. we wanted to make them in their late forties. So that was all very kind of that work was conscious. Um, but the way that I write, the way I approach my craft is it's very um, much my characters drive the plot. I was going to say, too, and I have a couple things to say that might be backing up topics a little bit, so I apologize. But I was going to say, too, the first thing I was going to say is uh, when I heard you say that you you are not a plotter, right? The one thing I the, the one thing I, I constantly think, and I am a plotter. So the one thing I constantly think, though, the good thing about being a pantser, as they say, or someone who does not plot, <laughs> is that a, a pantser can surprise you in a way that a plotter never can. Because when I was reading the book and the first scene where Adam meets the mysterious lady who changes um, or who starts him in, on his Austin journey, I immediately assumed that they would eventually get married to one another. That's what and, I thought. I was like, oh, she's going to be his love interest. Nope, yeah. sorry, wrong. But I like the defying my expectations. And you yeah. don't know, but Natalie also didn't know. And that's the magic. And some other plot twists just came like, you know, stopped me right in the jaw. Like that's how astonished I was by that. And the other thing I wanted to say too, which is, um, sorry guys, to back up topics, but when we talk about Natalie using this book to write some things that she was thinking about Jane Austen, she's sort of interrogating the stories in a way and saying, what was Jane Austen mm -hmm. doing? What could have been influencing her? Was there some religiosity there that gave her some sympathy for Willoughby or wanting to redeem him, this kind of thing? <laughs> I felt that it was an episode of this podcast and I was quite frustrated mm -hmm. that I could not respond and have that yeah. conversation. <laughs> well, now you can. <laughs> that kind, but that is the kind of thing that I was just like, yes, put it in my veins, right? Because yeah. this is like, yeah. That's the kind of thing I wanted to talk about. And um, I loved the references, especially that you put into the book about Mansfield Park and that oh, you did not give me. Okay, I'm just going to let you guys go and talk about no, this is Kristen's not. jam. She I'm loves. not really going to, uh, but I, I loved that you did not give it short shrift because even in uh, the Jane Austen book club, they're like, oh, we had to skip the Mansfield Park book club. You know what I mean? Kristen like walked out of the theater. <laughs> no I'm just kidding I was wondering Natalie how do you feel about Mansfield Park because the book the characters talk about it a lot and seem to appreciate it and I was wondering if that was you and I know Kristen would love to hear oh, no, I love Mansfield Park I think a lot of people you you have to be able to put Fanny's character you have to be able to contain it in a way because she's really an instrument as opposed to me, a, a pure heroine. And she is a reflective surface. She often acts that way, but at the same time, she is completely true to herself and her ability to resist, you know, the Bertrams and their, their, you know, the, especially the, the father's saying, you know, you, you have to take this you know, marriage proposal from Henry. Like, this is like, the only good thing that's ever going to happen to you. Um, her truthfulness to herself is in the end what I think all of Austin is about. So Mansfield Park has flaws. It's too long. And there's things about it that don't fit with the rest of the canon. But it is, I think, brilliant in its understanding of structures and how structures um, oppress and how people 
have to assert themselves at great risk and harm sometimes. And so I think thematically, I, I think thematically it's her masterpiece. I would completely agree with that. And in a, I think it's her masterpiece. There are some things you said that I don't actually agree with, but I think we all approach it slightly differently. Yeah. And uh, I think, I believe you even referenced, you know, like oh, the much hated Fanny Price and everything, but yeah. I loved some of the things that you said too, were just like, hey, within Mansfield Park is the perfect playbook for how a cad can make a yeah. good woman fall in love with. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. it is, yeah. And um, may go back to Aust- what you suspect Austin's soft spot was for cads or for men like Willoughby who get to justify themselves and get that scene in the book where they come back and they're like, no, I really did love Marianne. And and how that's also supposed to be a justification for Marianne, like Austin mm. needs to put that in there and like, no, she really was loved. And now I'm just repeating back to you things that were in your book that I love. <laughs> well, I thought that was a fascinating discussion yeah, um, I thought that of was that really scene in Sense and Sensibility. And, and you put it into the mouth of a, a screenwriter who's writing the script, a script for Sense and Sensibility and who, who like understands it much more than the person who is spouting it, which yeah. I thought was a great callback to the irony of like Miss yes. Bingley pretending to love books and everything yes. like that. And there are so many Easter eggs by the way, in this book that just made me overjoyed when I come came across them, like who cried the most, right? Right. No, no woman in England would have borne it. Like there's so many things. And by the way, there's also also reference to you're a one woman USO. Is that a callback to the movie Grease? (laughs) No, it's not. But you know what? That's one of my favorite movies. So it could have been in my creative subconscious. (laughs) Um, I I would, I would give the Easter eggs in this book. I would rate it three out of three ha ha's because that's how many times ha ha's were referenced. I kept a running total because that is my favorite part of Mansfield park. Is yes. when they are talking about the ha ha. Yeah, and yeah. there was a ha ha in the first chapter. Yeah. I was very excited. Yeah, <laughs> I got the ha ha in a lot, you know. And I oh, and the, that. no, it's um, it was so much fun. A lot of a lot of the Easter eggs were definitely intentional, even in the first draft. Like I was having fun, right? I wanted to yeah. stay in that world. So um, lines would come out of me, like yeah, the who cried the most? Like I love that line. Like that's, that's just so great. It's, it's, such, it's a such a great line. And Natalie, I also wanted to thank you. Um, this is going to sound really stupid, but I'm also an attorney and I loved all this stuff about, yeah. according to the rules of parliament and yeah. all this stuff about it. Parenting law, I found it so interesting. I, I don't know if there was ever, if you've ever gotten that feedback before, but I was there for it. I loved it. You know, I haven't specifically gotten that feedback, but I knew that if I could keep it minimal, but have it present enough that people would feel like they were really watching the machinations, right. Of something um, that was, that needs to be set up right. Because it's, it is really important when I've worked on boards of directors and it's really important when they're all going to be fighting about stuff and making huge decisions about permanent structures on our earth. Right. Like if you agree for that to change or that to get torn down, um, you don't get it back again. So I really wanted there to be just enough so that people could see the amount of work that goes into it. But also um, on a thematic level, I just wanted to pay homage to the work that the real life Jane Austen Society and the Trust um, have done. And and then the newer organizations like the Garmerchen Lost Sheep Society, right? You know, there's always, um, or the North American Friends of Chodden House, um, more recent organizations. Um, so I just really wanted to to show people the work that these people have done over the years. 
It also told me a lot about um, Andrew, the attorney's character, in mm-hmm. that as this is something that I think about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to a school that focuses on citizen lawyers, and his constant wanting to avoid any ethical dilemma or conflict of interest. I just, I appreciated that. And it really made me like him as a character that he just wanted to do it by the book as much as he could. Yeah. And you know, I, I love Andrew and Francis too, because they were the, the least intended couple in the book. And so I got to kind of fall in love as they fell in love with writing them. And Angie's character really resonated for me, both as a former lawyer, but also in terms of how important he has made his job to Mm -hmm. his life. He has, through his own heartbroken state and therefore grief, um, he has turtled back from, you know, building a life with somebody. He's developed what I call in the book a proxy version of a family life by hanging out at the great house, right? Right. Francis about all the household responsibilities and managing things on a budget and, and everything else. And, and like, that's about it for Andrew at this point. And I, as a, as a lawyer, I'm also a career coach. So for the past two decades, I'm not a practicing lawyer anymore and haven't been for that long, but I've been coaching lawyers primarily, but also people in other professions. And I have learned through my coaching, which a lot of which involves outplacement, which is when people have been let go. And I, come forward and I try to help them through what is often one of the most devastating times in their lives. And I have learned and appreciated how important our jobs are to our identity and how, in especially in modern society, our jobs are often taking us over. And I wanted my characters' jobs to be very important to them. Um, I wanted their jobs to be relatable or identifiable. So teaching, medicine, um, doing household care, uh, being a lawyer, being someone that works with the earth. I, I really wanted to kind of show how the job that somebody has is a big part of their identity, but also they should not let it take them over. And they mm-hmm. may have to make decisions. They might also, like Dr. Gray, may, might make mistakes sometimes too. Mm-hmm. Let me go back to my notes. Um, I would actually like to know, this is kind of peeking behind the curtain, but you mm-hmm. were talking earlier about the kind of year of un, um, mm-hmm. unintentional research. Yeah. Yeah. All of the stuff about the books that were in the library of the Great House that Evie uncovered, um, even the language the characters spoke, how much of that did you have to actually look up and make sure? And where did you get the idea to have what books would be in the library? Well, one aspect of it was, again, a, a pantsing versus plotting, which is that Evie, Evie was not originally going to be a big part of the book. Um, I fell in love with her as I was writing her. But I had noticed that I had been mentioning her several times in the first draft, I, the first half of the first draft. I realized I had said, Frances passed Evie on her way to dust the library. And I think literally the third time that I wrote it, I, mm-hmm. I remember, honestly, I, I do. I, I, I pushed back from my laptop as if I'd been shot. And I just went, what the heck is she doing in the library? Yeah, Evie, what are you up to? What are you up to? And then I, I start to, I just got this idea. And I think it must have all been very latent from just a lot of, I don't know, reading that I had been doing about those last editions, the first editions of American versions of, you know, mm-hmm. Emma by Juliet Wells, like just this sense of what happens to these books. So I end up writing this 
storyline involving, you know, the library and the books. And you had asked about both like the language in the book, but also the uh, books in the library. So I'll answer yes. the second one first. So the books in the library, I finished the first draft, which I wrote, I would say like fairly quickly because I, I had done a year of research beforehand. So what I did when I wrote was I just wrote. I never really backfilled the research. I figured, oh, I can do that later. But I was having so much fun. I just wanted to have fun at that point in my life. So this was not, I was not trying to get published. I was writing this for me and I was writing it for my husband and I was having a blast. So I'm writing this book and I want to get the characters fleshed out. I really want to get their stories done. And at the end, I mean, I know she's in the library and I know she's cataloging these books. And then I start to do, I get interest from this agent, right? I'm like getting like serious, like um, response. So I tactically went online and discovered that right around that time, the Garmisch and Lost Sheep Society had uploaded the um, a digital library where you could go and you could actually click and see the list of all the books that had been in Garmerson Park. And, oh. then, and then in the early 1800s, in the Knight Family Library, they kept a record. And you can actually read the Knight Family Library record from Chawden House. You can read it into the 20th century and you will see Daphne du Maurier and other things. Like, it's really cool. So then what I did was I looked at the time period of Jane Austen, made sure that I had um, books in there that the Knight family might have acquired that could be of value, made sure that the Lord Byron, Child Herald, like things like that, got in there. And I can't vouch for that 100% now, because sometimes as a writer, you'll pick something because it sounds better, um, <laughs> melodically. You'll, you'll say, I want another e, I want another book that starts with an E right now for alliteration. So, uh, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but, the, but the essential goal is there. And then to go back to language, I mean, I live in the past. I'm a culture freak. I watch so many period dramas, and I read a lot of classic literature because um, my life has been quite difficult, especially the past three or four years, and I really enjoy rereading. And so I wrote a whole article about it, actually, that was on Lit Hub a couple of weeks ago about, like, the joys of rereading for me. And I definitely think that I often have just absorbed the cadence, the sentence structure, and the vocabulary, because while I was writing, I did not really have to um, consciously think about how they would say things. After I was done, the copy editor very kindly pointed out to me that paparazzi was not a word in the 1940s, so that went out, you know, so there were things that definitely, copy editing for me was an exercise, Um, it was uh, was an experience, but we did our best, Um, but in terms of my writing of it, it pretty, it did come pretty naturally, I will admit. I loved all the libraries. Let me just say that I'm a librarian. I absolutely mm-hmm. adored and loved all of the library stuff, the cataloging, how deeply it becomes a passion because it is a passion and a vocation of calling to do that kind of cataloging. However, I have to say, and I'm just, this is just a joke. I, I just thought <gasps> it was funny. At one point, the library does move to a private residence and I have in all caps, several times in my notes, what is your fire suppression system? I yeah. know, right? <laughs> you, you can't be doing that. I mean, it's in like Adeline's spare bedroom. Like, oh my God. <laughs> there ain't any and it's dangerous, right? Yeah. One of the things I thought was fascinating in the book, too, is that you do take a little bit of license and you speculate a bit about Jane Austen's own life. And there's a discussion in the book about if Austen had gotten her man in the end, 
was it actually better for the world for someone to potentially interfere from Jane Aust- with Jane Austen's finding love so that her genius could be shared in the world? And, you know, just Jane Austen herself, there's basis in this because she was equ- yeah. it felt equivocal. She was ambivalent about marriage and talking about women just wearing themselves out with childbirth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, my opinion, which you may not have asked for, is that <laughs> I, um, I, would, I would far rather that Austin get her man. And I, I think it's interesting that your book is a meditation on reading Austin through grief and loss, which I haven't experienced the magnitude of grief and loss. So I don't know my, how my relationship would have changed with Austin. But sometimes I get a little worried about Austin, reading Austin through grief, because does she promise a false happy ending? I forget if, did I read this in your book that her juvenilia, um, when she discovered the happy ending, it sort of gave her a structure for how to write her book, (laughs) right? When she discovers the happy ending, she's like, oh, I can write a full book now and it'll have a resolution. And we all crave the happy endings. I don't think I could read Austin if they weren't there. But at the same time, we all live with the knowledge that she didn't get hers. So is it a false promise? Well, it's really interesting because as a writer, when I wrote this book about community and friends, people coming together, not through family bonds, but as strangers bonding despite differences over a shared love for something. I think that what I was also trying to do was create a world that I hope can exist, that sometimes exists, but not always. And the one thing I can say through the experience of writing my book, if I extrapolate from that and think about Jane Austen as a writer, is I do think Jane Austen was writing the kinds of worlds and the kinds of endings that she hoped for, but I think realistically knew did not often exist for most people. And I think she approached those happy endings. I think she gave her heroines what they wanted because I think she loved them so much. And yes. I, think she, I think she loved her characters as much as any author has ever loved her characters. And I think she wanted them to, to have resolution. But not not for once when I read her do I think she thinks the world is like this. Yes. And, and I think that's that that's the magic of, of what she does because it is, I say in the book, a tonic. It's a purifier. It's a, you know, we're probably never gonna get there. But this is what it would look like. And come hang out here for a little while and then go back and do your best. And that's how I, I feel when I read her. And that's the attraction and why we go to it when we do have those time periods, I I say all the time, like nobody wants to watch a TV show or read a book that's like real life because real life is sometimes a bummer and boring. And that's not what I'm in it for. Uh, We all know that, you know, quote, real life doesn't always end with the wedding and the happy ending. But when that's escapism, that's why we read fiction to some extent. We can work through these things and still have that resolution. And there are some amazing books that I love that do not have a happy ending. Brides Have Revisited, The Heart of the Matter by Graham Greene. Like there's tons of, I love them. And when I finish those books, I have catharsis. It's a different type of catharsis and it's, it's satisfying me in a different way. But when I'm going through a really difficult time personally, I need to find hope And what my book is also about is finding hope, both through the power of books and literature, but also despite what the world is giving you, is realizing that, and I say this in the book, you know, sometimes, and I know this personally, sometimes hope is like literally all you're left with. 
-hmm. but it is just enough to keep going and just keep trying. And I think that Jane Austen, I think Jane Austen knew that. I think that was a bit of the motor in her writing was it ain't over till it's over. And I love that she worked even when she was ill until near the end. Like I love that she started Sanditon and, you know, tried, tried to get it going. Mm -hmm. But I think she also, literature for her was, I think also an escape from what was a sad life. If I could wish a happy ending for Jane Austen, I would want her to have a family. And I would have wanted her to have that um, in such a way that she could also write. Exactly. Yeah. That's how I feel too. If that was her, if if that's what she wanted, then that. Exactly. What she had. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I like this idea that for her, the writing served the same purpose as it does for us in the reading. Mm. I'm pretty convinced of it. I think I felt that when I was writing, not that I can speak for her, but I did feel it. I felt, I think this is how she felt. That's how I felt while I was writing my book. That must be pretty amazing to feel this connection with a woman who lived 200 years ago, but to, whose work has resonated through the centuries and to feel a connection with her while you're writing. That's pretty powerful. So do you want to know how you do it? Sure. <laughs> you read her really quickly, all six books, bang, bang, bang. And mm. then you read everything about her. And you just like immerse yourself. And like, that's what my life gave me. My life gave me a period of about um, at least six months, close to 12, where for brighter reasons, I had to step back from, I had opened a little bookshop, for example, I had to close it down for, you know, health reasons related to my husband. So I had found some time. And what I did with my time was immerse myself in Jane Austen. And then by going to England, right when I was doing that and immersing myself sort of visually and experientially in Chawden for a week like that, it just sort of all lit up inside me. That's really interesting that you mentioned that because there's definitely a perception among non-writers and this yes. is true to some extent what you said that like yeah. the difficult times are when the art comes, but not when you're in the middle no, of the difficult not when you're in the throne. So everyone's like, oh, we're on yeah. lockdown, but oh, you can write that great novel now, or yeah. now there's so much stuff to draw from, or yeah. when you're in the middle of like a super depressive episode, like, oh, well, this is where all the geniuses yeah. make their work. And it comes later. It's just like, this is not how it works, no, people. No. <laughs> no, it comes later because the creative subconscious mind needs to be free. And yeah, right now we have... When you're in the trauma, yeah. you can't create. <laughs> yeah. No, like right now, everybody has like a steel-toed boot pressing down the top of their skull, right? And that they're fighting against. How do I make meaning for my day? How do I do my job? How do I feed my kids? How do I help my mother? Like all these things, you know? And, and there's this pressure. And your creative brain... For most people, sure, there's people for whom this that's how they're going to get through this, right? But for a lot of people, the creativity needs the freedom. And, and we're, we're in a different, different ballgame right now. And that's so, and what you were saying about coming back to Austin, for me, at least through all this, I've been very surprised. I have not been reading a lot, which yeah. for me is, that is extraordinary because in regular times, I read all the time. And with all of this, I've just been really shocked to discover for me that I have not been finding the solace in reading. And I don't know why I need to figure that out. Everybody always wants to be a part of history. And it's like, nope, nope, I changed my mind. 
And we know we're going to be those people now. Like when you would see your grandparents from the great depression, like, Oh grandma, why do you do that? Blah, blah. I'm going to get the grandma. Why do you have 10 boxes of macaroni and cheese in your basement? (laughs) Why do you have all this shelf staple stuff and I'll and toilet paper. And I'll be like, you don't understand. (laughs) Well, the humbling thing is when you realize this is the primary source document that we're making right now. And we're a little bit like Churchill reading Pride and Prejudice during the Blitz Mm -hmm. in that this isn't isn't (laughs) quite to the point. I mean, also, we don't have any power like Churchill did, but uh, this isn't quite to the point of uh, what America is on fire, you know, kind of thing. But yeah. Yes. So I, nevertheless, I was extremely glad that we got to do this and talk through this and extremely glad to be able to read your book, Natalie, and, and sort of find a haven in all of this. And, um, I didn't mean to step on anybody's last thing is Natalie, if there's something you wanted to say that you didn't get to say. No, this is great. I've been talking often. You tell the same stories over and over again. So I've really appreciated, um, that you in reading the book had specific passages and specific questions about it structurally and thematically. That was a blast for me. And I really enjoyed talking with both of you. I really appreciate all the time that you've given me and, uh, yeah, I'm good. Awesome. Okay. Well, normally at this point we would go to the wheat sheaf and do a reader mailbag. Um, and we have had a number of um, really fascinating things that people have emailed us about. And so, it, yes, and thank you one more time for coming and joining us. And this was incredibly stimulating and interesting. And thank you for the gift of your book. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And th- I'll just mute my microphone just to be on the safe side oh, here. You, I mean, oh, you're okay. welcome to comment, too. Yeah. If you want. Okay. Yeah, I'll you don't have to mute. Okay. I'm you're in it now. You're yeah, right. yeah. You might, might <laughs> as well. Away, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, I am very interested. So our listener Colleen, who um writes in with amazing points from time to time, has written in with a Northanger Abbey and Pride and Prejudice sort of slash question, and she had said that one random idea that stuck in her head is that Jane Bennett is actually a more mature version of Catherine Morland. Um, because they both approach the world, <laughs> approach the world with a fundamental belief in the goodness of other people. And perhaps if she ran into Isabella in the future, she would treat her more kindly than she deserved as Jane Bennett does for Caroline Bingley. And any thoughts on that? I think I Jane Bennett Jane is being a, a into novels when she was younger. I could see that. Yeah, and then when she, I said too, if Jane had been more interested in the Gothic, she would have been yeah. very much a Catherine Catherine Morland. I think, I think Jane is a really fascinating character actually because she, you know, that wonderful line about being able to see the good in anyone that Elizabeth says to her. She lives in a state of willful denial that Jane allows her. I'm sorry, Jane Austen allows Jane Bennett to get her happy ending um, and it all works out in the end. Whereas Catherine to me is, she's just very young and very trusting, but not willfully doing it yet because of that immaturity, I guess. So possibly there's a continuum there. Uh, yeah, and I think Jane Bennett actually is supposed to, we're supposed to think of her as having this great intellect, like by being no means deficient, right? Yes, so, yes. Which, which I, and we don't, we used to call Catherine Moreland not smart. We know that yes. that is wrong. She is Socratic, right? Like she was learning. <laughs> um, she may not have the basis of, of Jane and Elizabeth having this intellectual society of bettering themselves, which I like to imagine they had having no governess, you know, doing a lot of reading and talking about that kind of thing. 
We had our listener Wendy write in with a reaction to our recent podcast with Sarah Pesci, the um, editor of uh, Lopped and Cropped Editing Services, about Jane Austen fan fiction. And she has some recommendations. Her favorite uh, authors include Christina Moreland, Caitlin Williams, Nicole Clarkston, Jane Hahn, and Amy DiOrazio. And Christina Moreland is her absolute favorite, including the book A Remedy Against Sin, which is a forced marriage scenario, if that is your jam, if that is your trope. In, I'm, yeah, I'm putting my in, fingers together, Mr. Burns style. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> we got um, this incredible email from Jennifer, our listener Jennifer, who has returned to her apartment um, in state in phase three of Germany's opening up phase after spending time in her at her family farm, which was like very peaceful. So she's had to go to her apartment, and she said that she put us on. And listened to our PNP 2005 episode and was very calmed by us, which Aww, I think is so nice. I know it's so nice. If if there's one piece of good that we're doing in the world with this podcast, besides just you know puffing up our own egos, is my favorite thing is when people write and say, "You soothed me. You calmed my anxiety," which happens more than than I would have expected. Yeah, I don't and, normally think of myself as calming, but I appreciate you, everybody. I know. <laughs> I know. And then we got the most mind-blowing email from our listener, Zoe, who made some points that I'm still uh, chewing on. And one thing that she, one point that she made, if you remember in Mansfield Park, Rushworth and Mariah Bertram have all these exchanges where she's sort of subtly putting him down. And um, a lot of that is about his property and about his landscaping. And so, you know, for example, Rushworth, she, Mariah Bertram says, I really cannot say, I do not remember much of Southerton. And then when they go there, she has, she can speak with decided information about something she was so ignorant about and putting down to show off in front of Henry Crawford. Anyway, <laughs> Zoe makes a parallel. She said, Crawford later goes to Fanny and is asking her questions about what he should do in the yes. management of his estate. Yes. Yes, it blew my mind. And that parallel... It, it speaks well of Fanny that she sort of says, you need to take responsibility here. He's doing the same thing as Rushworth is doing, which is not wanting to take responsibility or make decisions. Mm-hmm. And the other thing it does is, have, if you've ever read The Gift of Fear, which is a book by Gavin DeBecker, it's a, a nonfiction book about um, how we should trust our gut, especially as women. Um, and that the, if you're in a situation and you, and you sort of feel afraid, listen to that gut. But he also talks about some of the things that predatory men do. And one of mm-hmm. those things that's... <laughs> yep. <laughs> Have you read the, Have you read this book? Sorry to go on like freight train. Oh no, no. Oh man, yes. One of the things that predatory men do is something called forced teaming, where they speak about something as though you're on the same side, yeah. and you have to sort of acknowledge that, and you have to sort of build rapport. They're forcing you to build this rapport. So one of the things that Henry Crawford in, is doing in this situation is forced teaming on Fanny, where he's drawing her into the management of his estate and saying, "We're on the same team. We're on the same side." when she's very much doesn't want that and he's forcing that on her and um zoe who comments she comments on um our facebook page a lot has referenced um to becker several times and i think it's a fascinating lens to use to look at austin's heroes and villains and what they do in their their behaviors and how it lines up to predatory behaviors 
that can be observed in everyday life. This is interesting, but it also makes me feel kind of like an asshole because one of the things that I do as an extrovert when I'm talking to introverts to try to get them to engage with me is like try to ask how they feel. <laughs> like, what's your opinion on something? Because if you ask a question, people will respond. And it's sort of like a technique I have just to form um, like a conversational bond. And it's and that's that's not for seeing. But obviously, it's, I mean, it's I don't really putting I'm it on to someone who's person. yeah. <laughs> No, it's it's not, and it's it. Force teaming is when you're trying to take advantage of someone, and you're using it conversation, you're using their essential politeness to force them into something that they're uncomfortable about. And so, just having a conversation is really is really not. Um, but he, in that situation, he's already proposed, and he's already made himself a threat to her. And so, applying it in that situation where he knows it's unwanted. And, um, the, you know, sort of a fear obligation, certainly when he elevates William to, uh, right. you know, gives him the promotion is another way. We both love William, right? We're on the same team and you're, you know, now you have to throw your lot in with, with mine because you have this obligation to me is another kind of forced teaming. So, yes. So, and, the, and it, it's been contrast to men that back off when they're refused, like Darcy, who totally backs mm-hmm. off when refused. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's These a playbook of a cat. Yeah. He, he could have forced teamed Elizabeth if he had come back. This One of my early, like, days on mm-hmm. Austin L is the question, why didn't Darcy go to Elizabeth after saving Lydia? And it's because of the obligation he had created, which is parallels what Henry Crawford did for Fanny, except for you can see how differently the two men acted, right? Oh, interesting. That's really interesting. Doing things like that is also a way to kind of ingratiate yourself because of the power differential. Like I own my own estate and yet I come to you to ask for advice on what I should do. But Fanny is not the type of person to kind of fall for that. Like, she doesn't have an ego that can be stroked by... Like Mariah. Yeah, by asking her those kind of questions. Yeah. She's just, like, offended and scared by by the pressure that you've now placed on her to come up with the correct response. And a finally thank you to our listener, Liz, who... uh, has discovered Arnie Prolstein through us. And, right. um, and now we've, we've made an Arnie convert, which I could not be more tickled um, about that. So, yes. Yeah, so having said all of that, Natalie, would you like to do the honors? We have delighted you long enough. <laughs> Bye. Thank you, Bye. everyone. <laughs>